Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. The topics on today's program will be World War II, the Battle of the Atlantic, and the War in the Mediterranean. And the second topic is the growing intolerance of conservatives on campus. Our first speaker is Yale historian Paul Kennedy. This is part two of our upcoming four-part history on World War II. I want to take you back to 1942, when nobody knew who would win the war. The Nazis had just conquered France after a few weeks of fighting, and the Americans had been humiliated at Pearl Harbor. U-boats were everywhere in the Atlantic and were busy torpedoing America's merchant marine. Paul will explain how the Allies successfully beat back the U-boat threat the Atlantic and why we fought Germany first. Our second speaker today will be Ilya Shapiro, who recently resigned from Georgetown Law School after he was canceled. Ilya did not support Biden's decision to limit his Supreme Court nominee to exclusively African-American women, and he had to go. Buckle up. I'm trying something new on today's podcast. I decided to raid the What Happens Next archives and replay portions of our best discussions on tolerance for speech on campus. I've included snippets from the six-minute presentations of Alan Charles Kors, who co-founded FIRE, Marianne Franks at the University of Miami Law School, Michael McConnell at Stanford Law School, and Emory historian Patrick Allen. And this is then followed by a discussion between University of London professor Eric Kaufman and David Weil, a dean at Brandeis, about discrimination against conservative faculty members. I think you're going to love hearing our greatest hits. If you missed last week's podcast of What Happens Next, check it out. Our first speaker was Sean Berkowitz, who successfully defended Michael Sussman of felony charges that he lied to the FBA about the Trump investigation. Sean gave us the inside look from the defendant's perspective. We then moved on to a review of the new Top Gun movie, Maverick. My friend Robert Young, who is a retired Air Force pilot, a.k.a. farmer, discussed how Top Gun influenced the last generation of fire pilots. Our final speaker was Darren Schwartz, who's one of my golfing buddies. Darren is the new What Happens Next movie critic, and he offered a humorous take on Top Gun Maverick. All right, let's begin with our first speaker, Yale historian Paul Kennedy. Paul, we left off our first installment of the Paul Kennedy analysis of World War II with a discussion of the war in the Pacific from Pearl Harbor to Midway. This second installment will cover the Battle of the Atlantic and the war in the Mediterranean before Operation Torch. Paul, let's begin the discussion with an overview of the European and African theater and the ongoing conflict with the Axis powers in the months immediately following Pearl Harbor. So, this is early June 1942. The British are reeling in North Africa because they're worried about what Rommel is doing, possibly advancing towards Egypt. Frightening there, where earlier convoys towards Malta have been so badly devastated there, the cabinet is discussing whether Malta should be abandoned. June 1942 sees the cresting point of one of the greatest land battles in the war, Stalingrad. In the North Atlantic, Dönitz's U-boat forces are growing day by day, week by week. So when you try to step back as, say, a Martian observer looking down on this dynamic four to five area conflict, which we call the Second World War, it is a decisive change in this Pacific campaign area, which is going to give the Americans more of an advantage after a long breathing space. But the war is being fought elsewhere in many ways where the Allies are not so successful. 
The war does not suddenly change in the easy advantage of the Anglo-American forces just because four Japanese carriers were taken out at Midway. This is a false reading of the narrative of the Second World War. Why did FDR decide to focus the war against Germany first instead of against Japan? For Roosevelt, in the struggle against fascism, the number one enemy being Nazi Germany, not Japan, because Germany has so much more in the way of industrial, scientific, and technological resources that the United States has in some ways to make sure that it cannot just concentrate on the Pacific. So the Battle of the Atlantic, the United States, even as a neutral, has a major interest. It is important for it that the British continue the war. When France falls, and there is a fear that Britain might also fall as well, Roosevelt sends a whole number of emissaries plus military and naval attaches in London to figure out what are the chances of Britain surviving? How do we help them out? Before the war, FDR faced isolationism at home. What changed after France surrendered in June 1940? The irony is, of course, the fall of France at last causes the U.S. Congress to get so frightened that it's willing to give appropriations in June and July 1940 for the doubling of the U.S. Navy. It will take two years for those appropriations to turn into real warships. And at the time, you still continue to look with alarm at this great struggle in the Atlantic as... Occasional German surface raiders like the Bismarck, but more singularly, the U-boat concentrated Wolfpack attacks under Admiral Dermots may throttle this daily and weekly flow of convoys carrying war materials to the British so they can carry on the war, defend their home islands, and advance themselves in North Africa and in the campaign against Italy. The Battle of the Atlantic was a matter of life and death for Britain because they were desperate for food. Why are the convoys critical for the American strategy? And how does this result in the Lend-Lease deal with Britain? The Battle of the Atlantic is strategically important to the United States, even in the two years of neutrality, which is why that clever guy, Roosevelt, allows a significant number of clandestine, operations and patrols by the U.S. Navy to look after the convoys in the first thousand miles of their sailing, why he negotiates with the British and the destroyers for bases deal to give Churchill's Navy a large number of older American destroyers, but to get possession of critically strategical bases in the Caribbean, and then through the Lend-Lease legislation agreed with by Congress in a nifty way to give an incredibly and most significant flow of goods without the British needing to pay for it to keep them going in the war against the European fascist states. My goodness, is this a strategic juggling act led by Roosevelt himself, and which the Navy's allocation of resources in the Atlantic and in the Pacific are part of the overall jigsaw puzzle of American grand strategy. I think it's difficult for the modern American listener 
to appreciate how scared the American leadership was of the loss of Britain and potentially the risk that the Nazis could control the Atlantic. Because the Germans could then disrupt American trade routes and even potentially invade South America and the Caribbean. Here is the biggest way of thinking about it, which again comes back to that determinant of long-range geography. The Atlantic is a long, long way from one side to the other, and the Pacific is even more, double that. So whichever nation is going to defeat the big obstacle of long-range oceans and conquer the challenge of geography is going to be successful. And if you don't do it, you aren't going to win. The Allies have advantages, but they also have challenges. On the other side, the Japanese and the Germans have to get over geographical disadvantages, the disadvantages of the British Isles being in the way of Hitler and his navy and other forces moving really into the Atlantic, and the great advantage of our still retaining the Hawaiian Islands. Let's put the counterfactual for just half a minute, Larry, to see what I mean. Supposing Yamamoto had been bold enough and successful enough to conquer the Hawaiian Islands in 1942. How difficult it would have been for us to do the comeback. All the miles from the Western Pacific coast to Hawaii protected like an enormous giant bunker in the hands of the other side. Supposing, and this was the other great strategic fear, supposing the British had collapsed, or supposing there had been a political coup d'etat somewhere because the Battle of Britain was going the wrong way, and the British negotiate a Vichy-France type of deal with Hitler. What then? Even then, there is difficulty for the Germans to get down to the Caribbean, just as a difficulty for the Japanese to think of invading all of California. But it doesn't mean that we didn't have fears or apprehensions about that. Therefore, holding on to Hawaii and building it up and holding and giving supplies to MacArthur, claiming that he can win the war from the Southwest Pacific, both of those make strategic sense in the Pacific zone of fighting, just as finding ways to keep Churchill's Britain going in all sorts of ways from 1940-41 onwards also makes strategic good sense. You're protecting the United States in its large insular continental position by making sure the fight is over there on the other side of the Atlantic or in the central Atlantic and over there in the southwest and central Pacific. It doesn't come to America despite a lot of the alarmism about subversion from within, about the Germans being able to get Bermuda and then even Florida. Lord help us. What a thought. War is much more destructive when the battlefield is fought in your own country. Millions of civilians will die. The housing and industrial base will be destroyed. It is a total catastrophe. And that is exactly what happened to Russia and Germany. But the United States was spared. The fighting is not on our shores. America can take full advantage of its unscathed industrial production to win the war. On the whole, try to make sure that the fighting is over there and is not with you. This, of course, was 
Hitler's initial success, their fighting was either way into the east, striking towards Stalingrad by taking France and Western Europe and giving support to the Italians in the Mediterranean. It's going to take about five years of fighting in Europe before the war comes to be here in the German case. It's going to take a long time in the Pacific War before it gets close to Japan. So, yes, indeed, if you can put out your armed resources, naval, air force, and army to hold bases, to maintain lines of communication, to get domination of the air, and to conduct the war long distance over there, this is a successful, very successful, long-range overall military grand strategy. The Battle of the Atlantic is most famous for the U-boat wolf packs. But there were also German battleships. Tell us about the breakout of the German cruiser, the Graf Spee, and the chaos that ensued. The great writer Mahan, in an essay called The Disposition of Navies, way back in like 1902, said that this is a great advantage that the British have against European naval powers, that they bestride the access and the egress to the Atlantic which can only be overcome if the Germans would build a fleet larger than the Royal Navy itself and extend it out to the north and to the south of the British Isles. This never happens. So that the German naval leadership coming up late because of the constraints of the naval limitation treaties can only send out these lone wolf raiders these long-range Panzerschiffer or pocket battleships like the Graf Spee, later on the Scharnhaus battlecruisers, later on the Bismarck itself, and hope to disrupt the convoys and the trade. In the case of the most interesting example here, the one you mentioned, the heavy cruiser pocket battleship Graf Spee is sent out in a clandestine way to patrol in the central and southern Atlantic even before the war comes in September 1939. When the war comes and long-range radio signals tell Captain Lambsdorff, the ill-fated captain of the Graf Spee, to go raiding and attacking and to disrupt British and French trades in the Central Atlantic and in the South Atlantic and even further into the Indian Ocean, the Graf Spee has for a number of months a field day. From time to time, it spots a British merchant ship, destroys it, takes on the crew because it's trying to observe the rules of war and the Geneva Conventions, and goes causing such disruption that by about November 1939, so the third month of the war, the British and the French have about nine or 11 large-scale hunting groups all over the North, Central, and South Atlantic and in the Indian Ocean searching for this single disruptive radar. It's an enormously successful operational strategy if you think about it, supposing that there had been not just the Graf Spee, but three or four of its sister ships capable of being ready, and behind it, they're about six months too late, the two even larger German battlecruisers, the Scharnhorst and the Neisnau, they would have paralyzed Allied overseas trade. 
and would have taken the Royal Navy and the French Navy a lot of good luck to get them. So the very fact that you have a single successful long-range raider in the South Atlantic, this is a story of the Graf Spee, is something that has to be given as a tribute to the German Navy. It isn't much, but my word, it carries out an enormous disruptive campaign, and the British find it difficult to counter it. Why was the German Navy unprepared for the war? I mean, after all, they were the aggressors. I think we have to introduce two points here, Laurie. First of all, Admiral Rader, the head of the German Navy, rebuilding frantically in the late 1930s, had been assured by Adolf Hitler that Germany was not going to war against the Western maritime powers, especially against the British, until about 1944. Therefore, the plans for the German Navy for a much, much bigger surface Navy could then be realized, including perhaps even one or two of the first German aircraft carriers, but a much, much bigger battle fleet. So when the war comes because Hitler deciding that he cannot wait to take out Poland in September 1939, provoking the British and the French because they have given guarantees to Poland, when that war comes, the German surface navy is so much smaller than radar hoped it to be. It was going to be those expeditions by raiding warships. The second thing is that the German campaign to take over Norway in the spring of 1940, although it ended up in the result of the German land occupation and takeover of the whole of Norway as well as Denmark, it led to enormous casualties on this relatively small German surface navy of raiders. Most of his big fleet destroyers were eliminated in the Second Battle of Narvik. Many of his larger surface warships, one heavy cruiser was sunk, some of the other ones were damaged in the battle. By June 1940, when France falls, there's hardly any effective surface combatant vessel left in Radar's navy. Supposing the radical submarine arm strategists in the German Navy had said, forget about the heavy investments in large-scale, fast battle cruisers like the Scharnhaus and Neisner. Forget the even larger investments in the super battleships like the Bismarck and the Tirpitz. If you had invested all of those resources, including the trained men, the iron and the steel and the board bearings and everything else, to quadruple or quintuple a much larger U-boat fleet on its own. After we had conquered the Norwegian and French forward bases, would we not, with hundreds of submarines, Larry, been able to totally paralyze and get control of the Atlantic, the entry to the Mediterranean, and all the way, after all, to Brazil and to the Caribbean? Should we not have invested in one single new arm of naval warfare, the submarines. Had we done so, would we have not found ourselves in a position from 1941 to 1942 to 1943 where we have limited U-boat resources to throw against the Allied convoys? And in that campaign, which was 
leading to considerable successes and sinkings, nonetheless provoking the British especially, but also the Americans to a vast array of counter-submarine resources. I think one of the problems with limited historical counterfactuals is that you must consider the antagonist response. Let me give you an example. If the Germans were investing vast resources in U-boats and not battleships, and then the Americans and the Brits would have, have invested in new weapon systems to counter the submarines. All right, let's move on. Let's move the discussion to the U-boat wolf packs and their attacks against the convoys. Let's reflect on the fact that this ancient form of naval commercial warfare, the convoy, is something hardly known in the Battle of the Pacific. At the late stages of the war, the Japanese, in some alarm, tried to convoy their merchant ships and their oil tankers because by that stage, the American submarine arm has got past its defects and is attacking successfully. But whereas there is hardly any convoy war in the Pacific, convoys are particularly important in reinforcing the British Isles and in reinforcing British imperial and fighting positions in the Mediterranean. Convoy is a form of warfare which was pretty well established by the closing years of the great British struggle against Napoleon. French surface raiders, heavily armed frigates could go out and wreak an enormous amount of damage upon unprotected merchant fleets. If the merchant fleets were clustered together in numbers of 10, 20, 50, and protected by two or three British fighting frigates, to come from across the Atlantic or to come up from West Africa to beat off the French frigate attacks, then you would successfully convey the material resources to the position you wanted to, namely the British Isles. So the British were ready for convoy warfare in 1939. This is not an unknown form of warfare contestation, either on the German side or on the British side. And the British have a whole array of small surface combatants, an intelligence system, a command and control system to protect merchant ship convoys when the war comes. They're not very good in understanding that the Germans are going to attack not from underneath the surface where you can detect them with ASDIC, but they're going to come chiefly at night on the surface. This is Dönitz's wonderful way, strategically, tactically, of ordering his wolf packs forward. And they therefore have this enormous challenge, Larry, of how at any given day in the war, and it intensifies by 1941, 42, any given day on the war, there are literally thousands of allied merchant ships on the seas across the Indian Ocean, coming round the Cape, the great grain trades and beef trades out of Argentina, the vital oil supplies coming from Venezuela, which have to be protected. The British have to protect about 15 to 20 merchant ship convoys, clusters of merchant ships in any given day. So the Germans have a choice here. Where should you attack to be the most effective when you have a limited number of submarines. This is like Admiral Dönitz's chess game from 1940 onwards with a limited number of attacking pawns and dangerous forces behind 
Where would you go to attack and throttle? There's one consideration that you might go and attack distant areas because, of course, those merchant ships are still merchant ships on way to the United Kingdom. If trying to attack well-armed convoys around Britain and Ireland is a tough challenge, why not send out your U-boat groups to attack the oil tankers in the Caribbean, which are totally unprotected? Why not attack when the United States comes into the war, the unprotected flow of merchant ships coming up the east coast of the United States, the happy hour where the Americans do not put the coastal lights out so you can actually see the profiles of these unprotected merchant ships and sink them in their dozens, rather than the highly contested convoy battles of Iceland. You've got choices here, Larry, and Dernus, despite his limited number of U-boats, has indeed choices. The other side also has choices. Where would you put your ships for convoy protection and long-range aircraft for convoy protection? Where do you put your limited resources to get the effect, best effect in this gigantic struggle of the Battle of the Atlantic? In 1943, the U-boats devastate the American, British, and Canadian merchant marine. You mentioned one specific convoy lost 30% of its merchant ships in a single trip. This is incredible and unsustainable. And then suddenly, the Americans and the British started to beat back the U-boats. What happened? In the year-on-year-on-year struggle between the German U-boats on the one hand and the defense of the British and then Allied convoys on the other, it's worth remembering that this pace of the convoy battles at sea generally diminishes over the winter months because it's so difficult to get submarine attacks on the surface when you've got 50-foot waves sweeping around or ice flows going around. So generally, the U-boat warfare against the convoys intensifies each year from springtime onwards. And this is no different when the winter of 1942-43 is over, the convoy flow to the United Kingdom is growing and growing because you're trying to build up a large American air force in Europe for strategic bombing, because you're trying to build up where a large American army would be quartered, and because you still have to keep supplying the United Kingdom and all of its needs. So when the bigger convoys resume coming out of New York and Newfoundland and Baltimore, in March and April 1943 to go across the Atlantic, Dönitz and his wolf packs are waiting for them. And a small number of convoys in March, April 1943 are really badly battered by this U-boat attacks. A 30% loss of the number of merchant ships in one convoy operation on its own means that every time, if you're doing worst-case scenarios, if the next convoy loses 30% of its merchant ships and the next one and the next one, you'll hardly have sufficient merchant marine sailors to help you, even if you're building a large number of Liberty ships in your home bases, and you won't have a number of established commodores and captains, and you might have run out or be deficient in the number of oil tankers. So 
the success of the German U-boat campaign against the Atlantic convoys in March and April 1943 is one where Churchill and the British Admiralty are beginning to fear that even the convoy system might not be working. The convoys attract the U-boats to them, like hornets or bees going after honey. Why not dismiss the convoys and just cross fingers and hope and send all of these ships individually to cross the Atlantic? Like an act of hope, but maybe they will be picked off successfully by three or four waves of increasing numbers of U-boats. By 1943, Dernis is having something like 60, 70, 80 U-boats operational, and others, of course, refueling in the ports. And then comes a decisive turnaround, Harry, that we've talked about in May of 1943, because in that winter period, a number of new technologies are being developed on the other side, on the Anglo-American side. It has to be emphasized time and time again that in this struggle between the Anglo-American forces and the fascist forces, the existence of in-depth technology and science and creative development and echelon strength that the British and the Americans have means that they, even though they get defeats and lose large numbers of merchant ships in 1942, you can think out this Battle of the Atlantic in the winter months and come forward in the spring with even newer technologies. Ever long-range patrol aircraft, miniaturized radar, which we'll talk about in a minute, more successful command and control of convoys, maybe better interception of Dönitz's messages, more ocean protection from newer forms of frigates and corvettes with miniaturized radar, with depth charges, with forward-firing hedgehogs. All of this you can bring into the fray in May and June of 1943 to counter that wily Dönitz with all of his German technology and increased U-boat numbers to try to win from his side onwards. This is a struggle of productive warfare, as well as the front end of men fighting against each other in the mists and the blackness of the mid-Atlantic. In their book, A War to Be Won, Fighting the Second World War by Williamson Murray and Alan Millett, in their analysis of the Battle of the Atlantic, they focus on the rule of 80-20. 20% of the German U-boats were responsible for 80% of the sinkings of the Allied merchant ships. The British and the Americans had broken the German naval codes, and they knew where the U-boats were going to surface to refuel. And the Allies decided to attack the top 20% most destructive U-boats. How important was it that the Allies destroyed the Germans' most productive U-boats? The Second World War becomes the first war in which each side has the chance, through reading the radio signals, if they can break the messages which are being sent on the radio waves to the commanders in the sea or to the U-boats has the chance interpreting those messages to reposition their own armed forces to destroy the other side. On the other hand, if you can read those instructions 
and you can get to know what the other side is doing, you can reposition your own sources or your own resources. And remember also that there is a struggle of rival decryptors and encryptors, not just in naval intelligence and naval codes, Air Force codes and German Wehrmacht army codes. The British code breakers all concentrated, as we know, at a place called Bletchley Park, were not only reading Italian as well as German codes, but they were finding that German army codes, Air Force and Italian codes were easy to break. German Navy codes were very difficult to break. And from time to time, you lost insight into them until you figured out the new and advanced, sophisticated way the Germans were making their codes more invulnerable. And the Germans on the other side were trying to break the codes, giving disposition of where the convoys would set out from. And Dönitz, once he sent his U-boats out into the wider world, wanted them to pop up at certain locations either to be refueled or to get instruction by long-range radio as to what they had to do next. So if you could determine the position of where those German U-boats were surfacing to get their messages or to get their refueling, and you put your long-range aircraft or anti-submarine corvettes in that position, you could take them out. So this is a battle of intelligence, of technology, of positioning, of trying to understand where the other side's U-boats are and try to understand where your convoys are going. Are they jigging north or jigging south across the Atlantic routes? This is a battle of intelligence in an applied form across the Atlantic. It's one of the most interesting parts of the war. And sometimes the British and American code breakers and forces are on top of this and in control. Sometimes they lose control where the German Navy changes its codes and you're back in the dark again. The military historian John Keegan wrote in his fabulous book, Intelligence at War. He tells the story of the Battle of Crete. In May 1941, the British control Crete, but they fear a German invasion. A New Zealander, Major General Bernard Freyberg commands an allied force made up of Brits, Kiwis, Australians, and Greeks. The British intercept German orders from their stolen Enigma machine that the Germans will invade Crete using a parachutist attack at a specific location with the purpose of taking the Herakian airport to land thousands of German troops. Freyberg is ordered to move his soldiers off the beaches to eliminate the German parachutists and defend the airport. Freyberg is unwilling to follow the orders fully, because he does not know the source, quality of the intelligence. Frankly, he thinks he knows better and is unwilling to risk an invasion by sea. Sure enough, the Enigma-based intelligence was accurate, and the Germans do attack at the specified locations. The parachutists are picked off easily as they float down, sitting ducks as the Allied forces fire machine guns at them. But enough parachutists do get through, and the airport is insufficiently defended. The Germans take the airport, fly in thousands of additional soldiers, and eventually win the battle for Crete. For me, this is an example that even with the best intelligence, you can still lose the battle. It has to be recalled that the suppliers of intelligence on each side are kind of terrified that their own generals and their own leaders will blow to the enemy the fact that you're reading their codes. 
So in many cases, you only say we have intelligence information about this or that or the other. You're not only going to trust your general in the field and say we have a way of reading the enemy's codes and we know where they are coming because the enemy might understand that and might take countermeasures like deciding no longer to use radio signals. God help us if one side invented not using radio signals or just using land wire or undersea cable communications, then the story would be quite different. So many older fashioned generals are not told at all about the new forms of decryption and intelligence. You're suggesting that you have a spy in Berlin or among the German armed forces and that the parachutists are going to come down in a certain part inland because they want to seize the inland air bases. As you say, even when the really professional German paratroops are dropped on these bases in Crete, they meet considerable resistance. There are some New Zealand troops as well as the usual local Cretans who come out to try to kill as many Germans as possible. But the Germans do manage by the surprise attack to seize the airfields. Hitler's conclusion that he has lost so many of his favorite parachute battalions that he doesn't want to trust paratroop operations for the rest of the war is a serious, serious mistake. The Allied planners draw the conclusion that parachute operations to seize an advanced base, though risky, are worthwhile practicing for. Worthwhile attaining so they do develop Anglo-American considerable parachute resources to use to seize beyond the landing bases when you attack Normandy in June 1944. But it is one of the most riskiest operations of the world because paratroopers sailing down onto a hostile-held position are completely vulnerable and be shot out of the sky like partridges. It's a risky thing if you can put the paratroops way further inland and to begin to occupy a position without being attacked in the vulnerable flying down, then parachute operations might well work. Thanks, Paul. We will hear the next installment, part three, in your ongoing history of World War II in a couple of weeks. Now let's move on to our second speaker today, who is Ilya Shapiro. Ilya recently left the Cato Institute to join Georgetown Law School. And you're going to hear today about what it's like to get canceled. Go ahead, Ilya. My name is Ilya Shapiro, and I've just lived a, a surreal experience. It started back in January 26th when news of Justice Breyer's retirement leaked. My phone was blowing up because I'm a Supreme Court expert, so people wanted my statements. And then throughout the day, I was thinking about this particular confirmation battle to come and just getting more and more upset about President Biden's restricting his pool of candidates by race and sex. He famously repeated his campaign pledge that he would be appointing a black woman. Uh, now, there's nothing wrong with appointing a black woman, of course, but uh, restricting it at the outset rubbed me the wrong way. That night, having come back from a friend's celebratory dinner, I was feeling festive and feisty and not a best practice. I was doom scrolling through my Twitter feed uh, before going to bed in my hotel room. And uh, again, in this kind of upset mood and tweeted out my criticism of President Biden's 
posture. And I said, you know, if I were a Democratic president, I would pick a judge, Sri Srinivasan, who's the chief judge of the D.C. Circuit. He happens to be an Indian-American immigrant, very smart, very well reputed, just uh, was on the short list for the nomination that ended up going to Merrick Garland. But I said, given the current hierarchy of intersectionality, he's out and will end up with a lesser black woman. And it's those three words that got me into trouble. I, of course, meant a less qualified black woman in the sense that everybody, if if I'm determining that this particular person, Judge Srinivasan, is the best, then everybody in the entire universe is less qualified or a worse choice. That's what I meant, given Biden's race and sex restrictions. And then I went to bed, tweeted that out, went to bed, and all hell broke loose overnight. I woke up. I saw that the Twitter mob instigated by several of the usual suspects uh, was going after me. I thought, this is not good. People are willfully misconstruing what I'm saying to make political points. I took it down. I said, if anyone's offended, I'm sorry. It was inartfully worded. But that was not the end of the matter. Things quickly moved from online to offline. The dean of Georgetown Law School, Bill Trainer, where I was about to move to, I had just taken a new job after nearly 15 years at the Cato Institute, the nation's foremost libertarian think tank, I was about to start a new job as executive director of the Georgetown Center for the Constitution. Uh, But that was February 1st, uh, and I tweeted a few days before then. So I had four days of hell. I thought I'd blown up my career. I thought I'd hurt my family. I mean, the dean came down on me, said I was appalling, and that what I said uh, was antithetical to the work of the law school, uh, etc. Eventually, after a huge national public uh, outcry pro and, and against me, the dean determined that I would indeed be onboarded, but would immediately be placed on paid administrative leave pending investigation into whether my social media commentary violated the university's policies on harassment and anti-discrimination. It took them four months to conduct this investigation, which quickly became clear was a farce. They were just waiting for students to get off campus to quietly reinstate me. The dean said that, well, look, we finally looked at a calendar and determined you were not an employee, so these policies didn't apply. But no vindication under the university's vaunted speech and expression policy. Nevertheless, I took the technical victory. I celebrated it in the pages of the Wall Street Journal, as one does. And I thought, okay, let's get to work. But then the report from the Orwellian-named Office of Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Affirmative Action, their 10-page report, hit my email inbox. I spent some time with my lawyer, with my wife, who's a better lawyer than all of us, digesting this. And it became clear that the university was setting me up for a fall. What this report said, and what the dean implied, was that Had I been an employee, I would not have been uh, reinstated or exonerated in any way. And indeed, going forward, any similar statement that caused someone offense or caused someone discomfort leading to a complaint would indeed subject me to discipline. And, you know, I can't work that way. I could not fulfill the duties I was hired to do. Some comment about a Supreme Court opinion, some analysis of a sensitive case or exercise I was conducting in class would subject me to to punishment. That sort of Damocles was an untenable situation. And I resigned, again, taking to the pages of the Wall Street Journal and releasing a four-page resignation letter. And then later the next day, I announced my career move on Tucker Carlson, as as one does, that I'm moving to the Manhattan Institute, a think tank in New York, to head up their constitutional studies program. So in addition to my expertise in constitutional law and the Supreme Court, has added this lived experience regarding cancel culture, not exactly the way I planned my career transition, but uh, man plans and God laughs. 
What happened to acceptable academic discourse? What I've experienced is not the decades-old complaint that law schools, colleges, campuses have a left-wing bias. You know, I graduated college nearly 25 years ago, graduated law school nearly 20 years ago. I doubt the ratio of progressive to conservative students or faculty members has changed all that much in that time. What has changed is permissible policy views to discuss and administrators becoming spineless in placating a radical woke mob. There's the enforcement of a political orthodoxy that makes it very hard, if not impossible, to dissent from that narrow, lefty-skewed campus discourse. Do you feel that controversial statements made by conservatives are treated differently by academic administrators than similar comments by progressives? So in the broader culture, in our public discourse, there's cancel culture, political correctness, shrill attacks from all over the place. In academia, the left wing is dominant. And no, professors who say outrageous inflammatory things from a progressive perspective are rarely, if ever, punished. In my resignation letter, I noted the tweets just in the last few years of several professors saying outrageous things. You know, if my tweet can be perceived as ambiguous and ill-worded to be misconstrued as being racist, and I don't think one reasonably can do that, but if you kind of squint and approach it with bad faith, that could happen. But these other tweets going after supporters of Justice Kavanaugh during his confirmation hearing or supporting the mobs that are demonstrating and trying to intimidate justices after the leak of the recent Supreme Court opinion in the Dobbs abortion case, or saying Republicans are not a legitimate party. And in none of these cases were these professors investigated, suspended, punished. And that was the right call by the university. I'm not saying they should have been, but it was, compared to my circumstance, a case of free speech for thee, but not for me. Do you think there is something unusual about the actions of Georgetown Law School's academic leadership based on your recent experience? I'm sure it might have been worse maybe at Yale. Hard to imagine many others where it could have been worse, could have been better in many. My own alma mater, the University of Chicago, has long been known for its commitment to the freedom of speech. Its speech policy has been held up as the gold standard nationwide. The Calvin Report in the late 60s during the tumult of Vietnam put in an official university policy of neutrality on political issues so administrators don't have to explain why they're not taking a position to support or oppose any particular political controversy. There still have been some controversies in recent years as COVID and George Floyd has inflamed certain uh, institutions. But I discovered, to my chagrin, Georgetown is one of the worst for this tendency of empowering the lefty, illiberal mob. Last week on our podcast, Northwestern law professor John McGinnis spoke about the increasing wokeness in the legal academy. He wrote an article on the topic in the Manhattan Institute's magazine, The City Journal. Do you know it? I read that piece by John. I think, unfortunately, he's right. And again, this is not a complaint that too many professors are left-wing, although there is a problem in hiring practices, discrimination by faculty committees, that it's much harder if you're a conservative or libertarian. But you know what I've been talking about is, is not hiring practices and faculty, it's administrators. We've seen when deans, presidents, department heads stand up for the rights of the faculty members, even when they disagree, at the outset, that generally dissipates 
outrage mobs and these things clear up. It's when they feed the alligator, when they try to placate the mob that they get into trouble. And there are very few administrators and law school deans who are willing to show that kind of backbone and commitment to the free exchange of ideas or the grace to say, look, we're all fallible and occasionally we misspeak and, you know, just have to accept people's apologies or that occasionally people say things that they wish they would have rephrased. Georgetown Law School was aware that you were a conservative when you came from the Cato Institute to the law school. Why did they hire you? The dean even celebrated my hiring in a community-wide email just five days before he condemned me because he's taken some heat from some alumni who have criticized him for Georgetown's being so skewed to the left. And now he could point, uh, you know, there are three and a half faculty members on the faculty of about 150 who are not progressive. I would make it four and a half. But my inartful phrasing gave a tool to my political or ideological enemies to seize on something and foment the outrage. And the dean, despite having celebrated me and knowing full well what my views were, did not um, stand up to that. In the scheme of things, why would it matter to have one more conservative in Georgetown's law school faculty? Most students go through Georgetown without having one of these professors. So if they go away, it wouldn't make a difference to them. Other than through the existence of the center that I was supposed to lead, the Center for the Constitution, which Randy Barnett, one of the storied classical liberal libertarian legal scholars of our time, founded 10 years ago. If the center went away, you know, that's a place that generates originalist scholarship that has seminars for students, for judges, public lectures, and other programming that punches way above its weight. Uh, I think Georgetown as an institution would be harmed without that serious, prestigious uh, center there. You have to be that much better as a non-progressive to be hired by one of the elite law schools like Georgetown. So those three and a half professors really are superstars. Again, for the average student, maybe wouldn't have had the class anyway, but for Georgetown as an institution, it really would take a hit. And that's why I'm using this platform that I've been given to shine a light on the rot at the heart of Georgetown and academia more broadly. It's not good if people go to the very best places and they don't learn what half the federal judiciary thinks about how to approach constitutional and statutory interpretation. Let's look at the big picture. You're going to reemerge in a different institution doing exactly the same thing, explaining the same ideas to the public. You did this at the Cato Institute, and now you're going to do this at the Manhattan Institute. Aren't think tanks the best platform to explore and articulate conservative ideas? Well, that's certainly what's been happening in general. The think tanks like the American Enterprise Institute, the Heritage Foundation, Cato, they arose as opposition to the dominant political philosophy of academia. Leading scholars could not get jobs at universities, and so they went to these other places. So it's not that this is some new development. I was hoping for for a new challenge, to have a, an opportunity to have an impact in a different way by being associated with the university rather than an ideologically identified think tank. But being affiliated with a university or elite law school is effectively the same as being affiliated with an ideological institution. Is free speech a problem outside of academia as well? Georgetown is a private institution, so this is not a matter of violating the First Amendment or the government censoring me or anybody else. 
universities don't have to have any sort of protections for speech and expression, at least private ones. Now in the 21st century, challenges to speech and expression aren't necessarily coming from government. They're coming from private forces. They're coming from cultural forces. I'm seeing pushback in the broader culture. The pendulum may be swinging back in terms of enforcing a a woke orthodoxy. But in academia, I I don't know. It might be irredeemable. I'm just not sure. Let's go back to what got you into the hot seat to begin with. Why do you think it was a poor choice by Biden to limit his search for Supreme Court justices to African-American women only. He would have been better off if he wanted to appoint a black woman to say, I'm going to do a full search and find the best candidate and then stick with Ketanji Brown Jackson or, or whoever else. That would have been much more effective. That would have removed any possible asterisk from Justice Designate Jackson That would have prevented criticism, not just from me, but from a lot of people. And indeed, 76% of the American people in a survey conducted by ABC News agreed that he should have not limited his pool that way. Just as Chief Justice Roberts wrote in a school busing case 15 years ago, there's something sordid about this divvying us up by race. And I think, you know, the more you racialize things, especially hiring practices at the highest levels of government, it's not exactly something that that helps social tensions. Affirmative action cases will come before the Supreme Court in the new future. Will the court overturn the use of race preferences? The Supreme Court's taking up challenges to both Harvard and the University of North Carolina's use of racial preferences in admissions. And much more likelier than not, the court will invalidate the use of race. How broadly it goes in doing that, will it uh, remove the idea of diversity as a compelling state interest that allows it to consider race? Or will it simply say that the way that affirmative action is practiced in college settings is unconstitutional because race becomes the dispositive factor and much greater than any other qualification? That remains to be seen, but almost certainly that's the way it will end up. And I think that sort of decision will be accepted quite well by American society where affirmative action is more like two to one against. Now, it won't seem that way because the elite is much more closely split and certainly Twitter will be aflame. But I think American society would accept and celebrate that decision. Why do you think Biden would have been better off if he had been disingenuous about his Supreme Court hiring process? Well, political considerations have always been part of the nomination process, either to satisfy certain constituencies, uh, regional interests, providing representation to the African-American community has been thrown into that hopper. It's never been the case that pure merit was the only uh, criterion for nominating justices. President Biden could very well go through a proper process and then ultimately decide that Ketanji Jackson is the one he wants to go with, and that would be fine. And then, you know, celebrate African-American woman, and that's the nature of politics. What is your assessment of these academic kangaroo courts investigating speech, sexual impropriety, or other alleged student or faculty misbehavior? This comes up in lots of different contexts with allegations of sexual impropriety by students where they're not allowed to confront their accuser or often even see any reports or have an advisor or lawyer present. These diversity, equity, inclusion officers, which have become a power unto themselves on a lot of campuses that don't allow for due process consideration. Universities are not well positioned to be courts. 
they're not the ones who should be investigating crimes and punishing people. And so when they engage in or levy severe punishment, they better have provided due process and had applied rules that were clear and applying them evenly. Otherwise, they open themselves up to all sorts of claims for a breach of contract and discrimination themselves. Were the attacks against you coordinated? And to what extent do you think does this reflect the power of the woke in these institutions? The Twitter mob was instigated by a writer at Slate named Mark Joseph Stern, and he's long not liked what I've had to say in terms of constitutional analysis, and so screen capped my tweets before I deleted them and what's known as snitch tagged Georgetown Law, racked up tens of thousands of likes, and, and away we went. The Black Law Students Association took the lead in preparing a letter. Uh, in some ways, it's a form letter. They kind of have their standard demands that they always want, and they plug them into whatever the facts of a given controversy might be. And I think ultimately something like a thousand people signed that letter between students and staff and, and others. I've heard that some students were pressured to sign that. Various organizations signed that institutionally, and there were complaints from officers within those organizations that they didn't want to be held to join that. But there was also a counter letter for that matter, led by the Conservative and Libertarian Students Association, what's known as CALSA, and various alumni groups. But yeah, there was definitely uh, coordination by students, by faculty members, by various constituencies. Do you expect the use of academic kangaroo courts to spread in society, whether that be corporate HR departments, the government, or otherwise? Well, when you get into the public sphere, when government's involved, it really can't unless courts are corrupted. So far, courts are holding. In corporate America, you see similar dynamics in HR offices with the explosion of diversity officials. So that similar dynamic as we see in academia, because college students are younger and they're more emotional and, you know, they have more free time and they're, after all, learning and debating constantly. If you're making widgets, it's probably improper to be criticized for something you say, but it's not something that, that happens a, a whole lot, although there are chilling effects against diversion from orthodoxy there too. So there are lawsuits that arise when you get out into the real world outside of academia, even more than you do in lawsuits suing educational institutions. So we do have some legal protections. Uh, I've, I don't know if kangaroo courts really exist to the same extent anywhere outside academia. What advice would you give a young conservative who wishes to be a law school professor at a top 10 law school. Don't write in the areas of race and sex. Those are the most conducive to inflammation. Bend over backwards to be respectful and kind to people. Do very good scholarship because you're going to have to be that much better than those who uh, agree with the prevailing orthodoxy. Seek out good mentors, senior scholars who you agree with or whose career path you'd like to emulate. Don't tweet. There's no value tweeting for academics anyway, as I see it. To the extent you write op-eds, before you get tenure, you have to be very judicious and only on dry subjects that can never be the center of political controversy. So young scholars should shy away from engaging with cultural war issues? Yeah, each time you do something like that, you make it that much harder for yourself. It's much easier for you to succeed if you're studying antitrust or securities regulation or something like that. Now, sometimes it's, it's hard to avoid these fights because there are votes in faculty meetings on things that could be a wedge issue that separates you from your progressive peers. At that point, the, the wise course might be to skip that faculty meeting. 
what are the, the real lessons to be learned from this experience? What lessons should my audience take away from this? This audience is substantially wealthier than most and gives a lot of money to these universities. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> That's my advice. Really be strategic about your philanthropy. Make sure that the targets of your philanthropy really do match your goals. And we've seen many examples of people endowing things, and once they're gone, that funding goes to support things that are completely antithetical to what the donor wanted. So think hard about what it is you want to accomplish. Most of the time, you won't be able to accomplish that within a university institution. My favorite with my, with my soon-to-be employer, Manhattan Institute, is the FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights, an expression now. They just rebranded last week to broaden their mission beyond education. It used to be Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, but they're going beyond that to cancel culture more broadly. And this is an organization that has filled the shoes of the ACLU, which has become just another progressive activist group. FIRE supports faculty, students, and others in educational settings, regardless of where they come from ideologically, or even in cases that have nothing to do with ideology, where people are persecuted for their speech. There's a wonderful group. Greg Lukianoff is the president, and his organization supported me with crisis management and public relations help, and finding me a lawyer and paying for that lawyer through their Academic Freedom Legal Fund. So just invaluable to me personally. They do fantastic work. But in any event, really think about what it is you want to accomplish with your money. A lot of centers like Princeton, my undergraduate and alma mater, has the James Madison program. And Robbie George, who founded and directs it, can tell you that there are ways of making sure that your funding in perpetuity only goes to the program, not to the university general fund or even any university account. They set up separate funding mechanisms. So you really have to be savvy to make sure that you don't end up funding things that are antithetical to what you believe in. Alan Charles Coors spoke on a free speech panel on what happens next in September 2020. And I've included an edited portion of his original six-minute presentation. Coors is a former professor of history at the University of Pennsylvania, my alma mater, and is one of the founders of the organization FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. Go ahead, Alan. College campuses should be among the freest places in America in terms of the expression and testing of ideas and of mutual forbearance on matters of conflicting beliefs. They are now the enemies of that freedom, having largely embraced in practice, if not in principle, Herbert Marcuse's 1969 appeal for an end of what he termed repressive tolerance. In its place, he called for, quote, intolerance against movements from the right and toleration of movements from the left to the stage of action as well as of discussion, of deed as well as word, close quote. It would not be difficult, Marcuse wrote, to determine, quote, the question of who is to decide on the distinction between liberating and oppressing, between human and inhuman teachings and practices, close. The goal was, quote, the reduction of suffering, misery and suppression, close, so he explicitly did not care about the requisite double standards. 
I think that the administration's faculties and a growing number of students on our campuses believe this now and have put it into practice. It's where we are, and the question is what will happen next. Take a look at the current cases on the website of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, www.thefire.org, before you accept or reject that view. If you want to know how it appears to conservative students, take a look at campusreform.org. Our colleges and universities on the whole have become, in this year 2020, the enemies of a free society. What happens next? We face on our campuses the convergence of Marcusean liberating versus repressive tolerance, the COVID-induced spread of remote learning and social distancing, the resurgence of Black Lives Matter and its self-proclaimed allies, and a darkly bitter election year, all of which has created an unpredictable mix. In response to limited budgets and the resurgence of Black Lives Matter's agenda, most campuses have committed themselves to what will become a bidding war for increased diversity but they specifically mean diversity by politicized intersectional notions of race and gender, and given the contempt for, indeed often hatred of, conservative and libertarian blacks, women, gays, and transgendered men or women, that will not mean intellectual or ideological diversity increases on campus or any occasions for challenging prevailing campus orthodoxies. But perhaps what will happen is that the new inquisitorial passions on our campuses to root out what they define as racism, what they define as sexism, what they define as injustice, deprived of daily interactions to police, will more and more respond to what is posted on blogs and social media, both in terms of faculty and in terms of students. The woke will be able to say what they wish in what comes next. Dissidents better watch what they say, and you all should watch for that. Thank you very much. Next up is Marianne Franks from the University of Miami Law School. Her six-minute presentation was made also on September 2020 on what happens next. She challenges Alan Charles Coors that the conservatives are being attacked on campus and that, if anything, that we should support the protesters. Mary Ann will be followed by the Stanford Law Professor Michael McConnell and then Emory History Professor Patrick Allen. Six years ago, soon-to-be Supreme Court Justice Lewis Powell lamented that, quote, frightening progress has been made towards radicalizing the campus. The movement has engulfed many of the most prestigious universities and has a recognized influence on almost every campus. Colleges have been shut down, buildings burned, freedom of speech has been denied, reason discourse repudiated, and academic freedom endangered, end quote. A year later, he claimed that it is common practice, especially on the campus, for leftists to shout down with obscenities, 
any moderate or conservative speaker or physically to deny such speaker the rostrum. Powell was, of course, not alone in his view about the dire state of campuses across America. In a speech to the Pentagon on May 1st, 1970, President Nixon said, you see these bums blowing up the campuses, the luckiest people in the world going to the greatest universities, and here they are, burning up the books, storming around about this issue. In Powell and Nixon's views, and those of many other leading conservative voices at the time, the real threat to America in the early 1970s was not endless war or environmental destruction or economic inequality, police brutality, or the violence and discrimination fueled by racism and sexism. No, the real threat was college students protesting about those issues. In the parlance of paranoid conservatives, campuses around the country had fallen prey to radical leftist indoctrination. According to this view, feminists, critics of racial injustice, advocates for same-sex rights, opponents of war and police brutality, were all colluding to violently suppress the reasoned, enlightened views of conservatives and impose ideological conformity upon the nation, a campus free speech crisis that threatened to erode the very fabric of American society. Well, everything old is new again. Fifty years later, well-funded efforts by conservative groups to strategically highlight a tiny number of cherry-picked sensationalist campus controversies, aided by uncritical, self-styled civil libertarians, and a gullible public have led us down the same path. Never mind the fact that compared to the 1970s, there's no coordinated sweeping student protest movement today, and the protests that do take place are milder by many orders of magnitude. Never mind that there is no evidence to support the conclusion that college campuses have been seized by some fit of ideological intolerance, and absolutely no evidence to suggest that conservatives are being disproportionately targeted. Never mind the fact that only the tiniest fraction of the over 4,500 institutions of higher education in the United States have experienced any substantial disruption over controversial figures or ideas, or that despite the outsized attention given by both conservative and mainstream media to anecdotes involving conservative figures, the majority of disruptions have been directed at progressive individuals and ideology. And never mind that college campuses remain some of the most physically safe and intellectually open in the country. Never mind, most importantly, that protest is a quintessential form of free speech. And that to criticize protest in the name of free speech is another way of saying that free speech is threatened by free speech. And that is what the campus free speech crisis is truly about, the attempt to delegitimize the free speech of some groups in order to maintain the free speech dominance of other groups. What was true in the 1970s and is true today is that when the powerful claim that free speech is in crisis, what they really mean is that free speech is no longer in their exclusive domain. Now, as then, students who dissent from institutional and political authority are portrayed as threats to public order who must be brought in line with force of necessary. In the name of protecting free speech, the powerful will use increasingly aggressive measures to ensure that historically marginalized groups stay silent. It is not as if we are starting in the classroom or anywhere else with the kind of blank slate. Every single major sector of society and government is dominated by white wealthy men. That is simply the world we live in. Even at the top 25 universities, 18 out of 25 are headed up by men. I think there's maybe one or two people of color in that list. So it's important to realize what the context is, that the people who most need to listen to dissent and disagreement probably are the people in power at any given point in history. And it is interesting to note how the words and the emotions about people's feelings change according to who you're sympathetic with. What we kept hearing by proponents of that narrative is that, oh, these students are so wrapped up in their feelings. They don't care about the discipline or the facts. All they care about is their feelings. 
And now we're told that the really important thing that shows us that we're in some kind of crisis of censorship on campus is that conservative students feel really bad and that they're nervous all the time and they're scared to talk. If we talk about domination in marketplaces, if we talk about people who are scared to talk, you have to at least entertain the possibility that one of the reasons they're scared to talk is because their ideas aren't very good. And if they're really worried about people judging them or thinking that they're racist, maybe they ought to worry about that because maybe their ideas aren't good. What the campus free speech handringers have right is that the existing order is indeed being threatened. Long-standing authority is being questioned, mocked, criticized, challenged. Where they go wrong is in failing to see that the attempt to secure civil liberties for all and not just powerful elites, to speak truth to power, to call for a reckoning of foundational racist and sexist legacies, to dissent against totalitarianism, to oppose fascism in all of its forms, is not a crisis of free speech, but the exercise of it. Thank you. Let's now get the perspective of Stanford law professor Michael McConnell on whether conservative students are being threatened on campus. Go ahead, Michael. Students tell me that when they express a view in class, they get a torrent of social media abuse. This is not a matter of their having fragile. And a lot of that abuse, by the way, includes various threats of retaliation. It is a serious problem. I'm not for using the authority of the university against their critics. What I am for, though, is for the university to stand up for its own values of diversity and inclusion, but to value political diversity and inclusiveness of all students, and not just those who hew the line of the prevailing political orthodoxy. Patrick Allott, you've been teaching history at Emory University for decades. How have you dealt with the current generation of students when they attack the morals and values of our predecessors? My job as a history professor is to teach students some history and to teach them how to think historically and then to learn how to write and talk about historical issues. They've got to learn the importance of understanding that in different times through the nation's history, very different sets of values have applied so that if we were to be discussing something like the Dred Scott decision, I'd insist that they leave behind completely the views they happen to hold today. And I often think it's a useful exercise to say to a class, think about the values you hold most dear today. And remember that 100 years from now, people will look back on us and be revolted and horrified by the knowledge that we once held those ideas. But we do hold them, and we hold them in good faith. And therefore, we need to take seriously that other people in other times have held their ideas, which now to us are abhorrent, in good faith also. So then, of course, the students say to me, ah, but which ones of our ideas that we hold now will later seem abhorrent? To which, of course, my answer is, I don't know. But nevertheless, it's a very useful mental exercise to go through. It induces a kind of historical modesty and discourages the students from being too granitic in holding on to the opinions which they feel so forcefully at the moment. Our next guest is Eric Kaufman, a professor of politics at Burbeck College at the University of London. Eric spoke on what happens next in March 2021 about academic freedom. Go ahead, Eric. I'm going to be speaking about academic freedom and the report that I've recently issued with the Center for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology. I really want to begin with two key concepts within universities and amongst the professoriate. The first is punishment, and the second is political discrimination. 
By punishment, I refer to administrative penalties from being fired from your job all the way down to being removed from administrative roles such as department head or given fewer resources for research, for example, or being told to teach courses you don't want to teach. That's an administrative punishment. What we find in my reports is that one in three conservative American academics have experienced either direct discipline from some layer of the administration or threats of discipline, one in three. So when people say that academic freedom is a right-wing moral panic, I think it's important to remind them that, in fact, we have a very pervasive problem in the academy. The second arm of coercion is political discrimination. In my work on Britain, I find that one in three British academics would not hire a known Leave supporter, that is, who supported the Leave side in the European referendum. I find that over 40% of American and Canadian academics would not hire a known Trump supporter. Now, these are positions that command either close to or over a majority of the population, and so it's absolutely astounding that we have this level of discrimination going on in hiring. These two prongs of coercion, punishment and discrimination, produce profound chilling effects, and in fact, no platforming is not the biggest problem, although it is a symptom and it is a problem. It is not the most important threat to academic freedom. The greatest threat is, in fact, the chill effect produced by punishment and discrimination at the everyday level. For example, three-quarters of British and American social science and humanities academics who are conservative report that their departments are hostile rather than supportive environments for their political beliefs. In the U.S., fewer than 10% of Trump-supporting academics report that they would be comfortable revealing their views to colleagues, and 85% of those who did not vote Trump, that is mainly Democrat-supporting academics, agree that a Trump supporter would not be comfortable sharing their views. So between the deterrent effects, the discrimination, and the ambiance that is produced in academia, we get the emergence of a monoculture. In my data, I find there are 14 on the left, every one on the right in the social sciences and humanities in Canada and the U.S., and it's nine to one in Britain. And so as this becomes more monocultural, you get worse discrimination. You also get a larger pool of activists. The only way to break the cycle, I argue, we need something like has occurred in Britain, where the government actually proactively enforces the law on academic freedom against universities, including the implementation of fines for violations and actively, not just passively, ensures that academic freedom is promoted because it's not enough to wait for people to sue. You need the government to be proactively enforcing the law. I would argue that you need to depoliticize administrative layers of the university. No university should be actively propounding political views. The academics can do that, but not officials within universities. Eric, do you think tolerance for academic speech will improve or worsen over time? speech codes were instituted in the late 1980s. We're now on into almost four decades of people writing books complaining about this problem. It's not going to fix itself. It's only getting worse. My data suggests the younger generation of academics under age 35 are twice as intolerant, twice as supportive of moves to sort of dismiss controversial professors as those over 50. So we've got a growing and not a fading problem. There are people who think, oh, no, the marketplace will solve this problem. It won't, not in a sector like the university sector, which has strong network effects and legacy effects. David Weil. You're the dean of the Heller School of Social Policy Management at Brandeis. Do you agree with Eric Hoffman that there is insufficient diversity on the university faculty? 
Well, I have a very different view on the whole topic than I think we've heard. We've had an exclusion of many other voices for long periods of time in the history of this country in academic forums and others. Academia is trying to become more inclusive of multiple voices, not just one set of voices that has dominated not only academics, but business and government. This is a much longer term evolution of, in my view. Eric, do you agree with David Weil that there are insufficient minority and female voices on campus and that political diversity should be a secondary concern? I think it's fair to look at your race and gender representation as long as it's done in a liberal way. What really sort of jumps out, however, is the fact that there is no effort being made actually to try and politically diversify the university professoriate. A lot of universities are in fact leaning into an explicitly and overtly progressive ideology and agenda, which is actually chilling things even more. You can try and pursue diversity in one realm, that's fine, but I think just sort of referencing history as a way of sort of dismissing the problem of political diversity is a bit of a diversionary tactic. I think really, if we're serious about diversity, we've got to be serious about political diversity as well. And it's just not consistent to pursue one form of diversity and close your eyes to other forms that are not being addressed. And actually, if you want to look at the professoriate, I mean, the political lack of representation is much more glaring now than, for example, the racial or gender. And yet, there is absolutely no interest in this problem. Thanks to Paul Kennedy and Ilya Shapiro for speaking on today's program. That ends today's session. I would like to make a plug for next week's show. Our first speaker will be Michelle Margulis, who is an associate professor of political science at the University of Pennsylvania. Michelle has a new book entitled From Politics to the Pews, How Partisanship and the Political Environment Shape Religious Identity. I hope to learn from Michelle about the relationship between partisanship and religiosity. This is a chicken and egg-like problem. Do voters become more religious because they vote Republican, or do religious people choose to be Republicans? Let's find out. Our second speaker is Dion Sujic, who is the former director of the Design Museum in London. Dion has written the book, The Language of Cities, about the complex evolution of cities. I find the dynamics of urban life fascinating, and I'm going to raid the What Happens Next archive again to hear from Ed Glazer, Howard Husak, and Mitchell Schwartzer to compare their insights with Dion's. You can find all of our previous episodes and transcripts on our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com. Replays are also available on Apple Podcast, Podbean, and Spotify. Thanks to our audience for your continued engagement with these important issues. Goodbye.